So I'm excited this morning to be able to jump back into John, into chapter 4, some of my favorite verses in all of the scriptures. And I am excited, and I recognize when I'm excited, I talk a little faster, and I have received some feedback, and I'm going to do my best to try and slow down a little bit, but I, I, I'm trying to adapt to America and to this area, and uh, it's, uh, it is a challenge for me. And so I'm trying, I'll, I'll try to slow down a little bit, but the more excited I get, the faster I go. So I could try and give boring messages, and then I'd be nice and slow, but I'm going to do my best to, uh, to try and, uh, and, and, and stay a pace that people can stick with it. So we'll, we'll see how this goes today. But uh, this morning we, we get to, 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 again, go through, again, 1 John verse 7 to 12, but I, I first want to start with a question, and that is, in your walk with God, in the time that you, you spent with the Lord, um, or as you've grown up, what has shaped you more? Would, would it, the things that shaped your, your experience with God more, is it, uh, it going to be more the, the, the wonder and love and His grace and how amazing He is? Is that what's been the greatest shaper, or has it been the, the threat of the law? And, and maybe a fear of consequences of, of, that has shaped more of your faith and the way that you've walked with God. Because the majority of Christians, if we're honest, we, as we begin to look at statistics and whatnot, that many of us, the greatest impact on us isn't necessarily that Jesus draws us to himself with his great love, but that we have all these fears and all these things, the threat of law that kind of holds us in place, and that tends to have a larger impact upon us. In fact, Dr. Um, Gary Burge, a professor at Wheaton, did a, a study amongst all seminary students, and he had them all write these essays on kind of what were the largest determiners of, of the, that, that shaped the way you walked with God. And 90% of his seminary students responded that it was actually God's possible displeasure with them that shaped more of their walk with God than his unending love. And it was more of his potential wrath and consequences that actually shaped more of the way they lived their lives than simply the fact that they are deeply, deeply loved by the Father. And I found that to be true as I've traveled across the globe working with thousands of missionaries across the world and, and the church across the globe. I find that to be pretty similar that for many Christians, Christianity is, is, can oftentimes be more about following the rules and, and trying to do the right stuff than actually just getting to know how amazing our Savior is and loving him. Or I love, as John Ortberg says it in his book that it's called uh, Eternity is Now in Session, a great book by him. But he, he says that being a Christian can sometimes become more about satisfying the minimal entry requirements to get into heaven. Right? Like, here's the things that we need to do to get into heaven, and, and that kind of becomes our goal. Or, or it becomes uh, about sin avoidance and, and, and more about kind of appeasing a distant God than actually receiving the love of the most incredible loving being in all the universe and being able to just live out of the overflow of that love. And so today we get to look, again, some most amazing passages in Scripture right here. I'm, I'm excited by this text because I love it so much. Starting in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 through 12, and we're going to see John utter the most important truths he will ever utter in here, that God is love. So as we go through this, see if you can pick up on what the most repeated phrase is or repeated word in, in, is in this passage. Okay, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, 
we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So anyone hear a word possibly repeated a few times there, right? A ridiculous number of times. In fact, in just short six verses, 13 times he refers to love here. In this chapter, almost 30 times he's going to use the word love. So it's not like we have to make a big stretch to figure out what John is talking about here. There's going to be a lot of repetition today. I'm sorry, but not sorry, because John repeats himself over and over again, and I feel I have to be honest with what he's saying. But this passage is about God is love, and because his love is so great, now we must love one another. So let's break this down a little bit. Verse 7, we'll go back there. Beloved, let us love one another... For love is from God. Love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. It's not enough to say that just that God loves us. Well, that's true. But here, John takes it so much further. He said, God doesn't just love us, but God is love, right? Or as N.T. Wright says this, I love what he says, that the very, God is the very essence, or love is the very essence of who God is. It, love is what defines God. It, it, love is what tells us that God, or sorry, th- this passage tells us that God is the source of love, but far more than that, that he is love. Love is what defines him. I mean, there's so much beauty here that we can never begin to plumb the depths of. That God doesn't just love, but he is, he's not just the source of love. God is love, is how he's defined here. I, I want to give a quote from, from uh, a scholar, Dr. Constantine Campbell, cool name. Um, but he has this beautiful quote that is far better than I could say it, so I thought rather than me just like trying to paraphrase it and rip it off, I thought I would just give the whole thing as he says it. So here it is. So God is love, Constantine says, and love therefore characterizes all of his activities. God's creating, his ruling, his judging, his revealing, his instructing, his blessing, his disciplining, his giving, his rebuking, his sustaining, and recreating are all done in love. There is nothing God does that that does not emanate or come out of his loving nature because he is love. He is the source and everything that comes out of him is love. And we'll continue. So he says next, to understand God primarily as angry or judgmental, as many of us have grown up doing, is to distort that reality. Yes, God does dispense wrath and judgment, he says, but it is important to acknowledge that this is his alien task. Using reference from Isaiah there. Judgment does not define who God is at his core. It does not reveal his central identity. Only by knowing God's love can God himself be understood and known. Since love is so central to who God is, love is so central to the reality, the nature of who God is, true knowledge of God simply must understand him as love. If God is not known as love, he is not known at all. Right? If we don't think of God and love is the first thing, it means we don't know him. I mean, there's so much beauty to be unpacked here that if we don't know love and live out his love, John says it means we don't actually know him that well. It's not that we don't know him all, him at all, but that we don't know him very well. Like there's so much more to know as we're going to keep, as we keep going with this passage. You know, so many of us, we, we've grown up 
with God's love just being one of, of his many attributes that, that's held in tension with his, you know, his judgment and his, his anger and his wrath and I mean, mercy and, and all these other things. Just one of the things the names of God could be love as far as understanding. And, and for many of us, we've grown up, if we've grown up in the church with some degree of almost a split personality disorder of some kind. That, that one moment we experience his love and, and it's like he's embracing us and we, we, we feel so good and, and, and he's showering us with his gentleness. But then another moment, we, we, we feel that he's looking at us in disgust because we moved in sin. Or, or that we didn't meet up to his expectations. You know, one minute we may feel secure in his arms, and the next day or something may happen, and we all of a sudden we're living in this terrible fear of eternal damnation or something that we don't live up to the God's standards and his expectations upon us. It can be like divine whiplash or like a roller coaster you really don't want to be on. Right? Of this scene, like, I'm feeling good with God, and then something happens, and we live under three. Oh, what about this, and what about that? And, and, and this was especially true. But like, a great example of this would be like the purity culture that happened in the 80s and 90s in the church, where, where, where Christians, I mean, that, that's coming out of my generation, but it still has echoes today, and it was before that, where people would feel that God could be disgusted with them if they walked in sexual sin, or even, most horrifically, if they'd been abused. They feel that somehow they are unworthy of God because something's wrong with them. That somehow God's love does not penetrate through the brokenness and the sin or through the abuse. And we, we live in the state of, of feeling unworthy and not enough of living up to who God is. It's so messed up. And so many have walked away from the faith. So, so many have walked away from the faith because it's just too exhausting, this roller coaster ride of how does God feel about me today and, and how close am I to him today and, and, and trying to earn God's love by like reading the Bible more or maybe volunteering at church more or making yet another commitment that I'm going to control my thought life today only for the, the cycle to begin again. And, and sometimes it can feel like we're, we're trying to climb a ladder to get closer to God to reach intimacy with him, to, to experience his love. And, and when we're doing really well, it's like we're feeling good. We've been walking with him and, and we feel safe in his arms and we feel good and we feel his approval. But then what happens when we sin or we move back into our areas of brokenness? Maybe we, we got angry and we used old coping mechanisms of alcohol or, or some other broken coping mechanism that we have. And what happens when we feel like we're climbing this ladder? It's like we fall down a few rungs. Right? And we feel further away and it's tired. It's like, man, it took me weeks to climb up to that space on the ladder. And now I'm all the way down here. And our response oftentimes is not to say, okay, I got to get back up there. But it's often to say, oh, I'm tired. And so we just go further into the sin. We just go full bore sometimes. And we find ourselves then just covered in shame and weary until maybe we get a good sermon or a good message or something happens. We build up the energy and we just go, okay, time to climb back up again. Get that Bible out, dust it off, go spend some time with the Lord again and get back into his presence because I know he's good, but man, I'm tired. Right? I mean, that's exhausting. And for so many Christians, that's been so much, a, so much a part of our experience, that roller coaster with God. Because we don't recognize sometimes that we serve an earthly father that loved us so, so much. Sorry, sorry, Heavenly Father loves us so, so much. Because if we served an earthly father that was like that, imagine if an earthly father treated us that way. That would be a horrific father. Right? If we served an earthly father that was like the vision, the idea that many of us have had of God for much of our lives, child protection services would be called. And removed, we'd be removed from their homes. Because, I mean, could you imagine, like, I have a, 
son, and I'm thinking of, of my five-year-old Hudson. If I was with Hudson, and he's doing well, and we're having fun, and we're enjoying time together, but then later on, maybe he's playing with his brothers, throws a ball, and the TV knocks down, and it breaks. I'm like, what are you doing? And he feels terrible. He feels that he knows that, he, that, I've dis, that he's displeased me and that he, he no longer has my affection. And then he, he goes and runs and hides in his room. And, and I go chase him down and I say, Hudson, imagine if I said, Hudson, here's the list of the things you need to do to get back into relationship with me. And when you finish this list and you do these things accordingly, and I feel that you are fully repentant of what you've done, then my love will be shown to you again. Here's a ladder, climb it. I'll be waiting at the top. I mean, how horrific that would be. That's child abuse. And yet for so many of us, that is actually a twisted way in which we view the love of the Father. That it's conditional upon our actions. That it's conditional upon what's happened to us or what we have done. And that is not who God is. John here defines him and says, God is love. Everything that comes from him is love. When the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 runs away from his father and squanders everything, tells his father he hates him, gives up everything and runs away from him in Luke 15. And then he recognizes his world turns upside down. He loses it all and he's repentant and he goes back to his father, wants to tell him, I'll just be your slave. And the whole way he's preparing his long repentance speech. When finally his father is within earshot, he starts giving out his repentance speech, saying, I'm so sorry. But Jesus says, this is what the father looks like. When the father comes with it, sees him, he runs. He doesn't let the son get more than a few words into his repentance speech before he embraces him, showers him with his love, restores him back to full honor of his position and embraces him and says, I'm just so excited you're here. And somehow we, we lose sight of that understanding of God so frequently that love is who God is. It's not just something he does as a condition of our obedience or a condition of our lack of sin. All that he does flows out of his nature as a loving God, like a river just flowing forward from him. And his love is unconditional. When we're in the middle of an incredible worship time just a few minutes ago, his love, yes, is there. I was just holding back tears and just saying, yes, God, you are faithful, you are loving, as my dad's sitting there right next to me, and I'm just like, yes, God, you are good. Man, that was beautiful. Thank you so much, Esther and the team. That was beautiful. And God is there with his love. But if, if you're struggling with pornography and guilt is washing over you, his love is right there too. If we're arguing with our spouse and getting into a heated argument or, or yelled at the kids, his love is right there too. If, if we're feeling weary and he feels distant, if, if, if we prayed and it's not been answered, if your cancer has not yet been healed, his love is still right there with us whether we feel it or not. And I, I know this isn't a new revelation for us, right? This is, this is, this is 101 of Christianity. But I, I, this is what John is saying here. And I think we need to hear it again and again and again because it's so foundational. Because even many of us, if, if that would qualify us, some of us in this room, as mature Christians, even many of us would find ourselves sliding back into some of these twisted views of God as we move back towards areas of our own brokenness and we move back towards fear, anxiety, and weariness. And we allow those things to take the place of his comfort and joy and love, that we are his sons and daughters, fully, fully loved by the Father. I mean, it's so beautiful, and I wish I could just spend the rest of the time here, but there's a few more beautiful passages we have to get to. So uh, verse 8, John says this. He says, anyone who does not know, or does anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. 
So God is love, and, and if we are not reflecting his love, is what John says, it's because we don't actually know him. So if we're not loving, it's not that there's a problem with God, it's that we don't understand God well enough. That we have a twisted view of him in some way. Our lack of love is evidence that we don't actually know him that well. And we've not truly experienced his love. Because God is that good that if he says that if we understood how much God loves us, we would be naturally loving one another. Because that is what it means to, to, to know God's love. And then in verse 9, he says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. So John says that his, his love was made manifest, that Je or Jesus was made manifest, or God's love was made manifest, and it, it was clearly demonstrated. Manifest means it became real, or it became clear. It became visible to the world in Jesus. Because God sent his son, Jesus, to the world to give his life, and John says this is the very definition of love. Jesus giving his life for us. That, he says, is what love is. Jesus lays down his life for us so that we can have love. Despite all our sin and brokenness, he gives his life for us. Jesus steps into, fully steps into humanity, comes from heaven to earth so that we can break free of our bondage and we can be with him for eternity. And John again says, this is love. This is God's love made visible to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And John's just getting warmed up here, right? So I'm going to be saying this again and again and again because we're, we're just getting in the middle of this passage. So he then defines it further in verse 10, and he says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. Right? So we are not the ones that pursue God. Love is not dependent upon our ability, our capacity, our willingness, our, 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 our desire to love him. No, it is because God is the one that pursued us, right? He pursued us. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says this. He says, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were literally nailing him to a cross... He's dying for the people and giving his life for the people that were literally nailing him to the cross and beating and whipping him. That while we're still in sin against God, God is loving us and giving his life for us. And so, so often in the scripture, this very act of Jesus' sacrificial love, it's what's used as the definition of love in the Bible. Jesus' sacrificial death is the chief example used in scripture. So I just, I want to give us some examples of this stuff. So it, Jesus says this in John chapter 15. He says in verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. I love this because Jesus says this before he's died on the cross, obviously, right? And he's, he's foreshadowing, but he's saying the greatest example of love is if someone were to lay down their life for their friends, knowing that that's the path he's about to take, even though they don't know that. So they were thinking hyperbole. This must be exaggeration, right? That's just some crazy idea. But Jesus says, no, that's real, and that's what I'm about to do because that is the ultimate act of love. Or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says it this way. Therefore, be imitators of God, beloved as beloved children, and walk in love. So imitate God and walk in love as Christ loved us when he gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. 
So Paul says, follow Jesus' example and love the way he did. How does he love? How does he define love? When Jesus died for us. That's the model of love. Sacrificial death. And so now we get back to chapter 4, verse 10, and we see he says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now we can spend all day unpacking that massive word propitiation, but just just a fancy word that that, that means that, that Jesus laid his life down for us, right? He gave his life for us, taking our place, taking our sin upon himself so that we could be fully restored to God. That again, the act of Jesus' death is lifted up as the model of this is what love looks like. So John says, God is love. And the greatest ultimate expression of his love is Jesus and his death on the cross. Jesus is God's love made manifest, made clear, made visible to the world. As we know, for God so loved the world that, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. The single greatest act in all of history, the loving sacrifice of Jesus. And that is what is set up as as the standard. This is what love is. And so before in the beginning, in Genesis, right? In the beginning, before there was in the beginning, before there was a cosmos, there's the Trinity. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit perfectly loving one another in perfect love because that's who God is. He is love. And they perfectly loved one another. And so everything God does flows out of this love. It's because it's who he is. He creates the universe out of love. He he creates the trees and and the seas out of love. He creates mankind as an act of love to multiply his love into all creation out of his love. And when we turned away from him and destroyed his creation in his love, he restores us by giving his life for us. This is the God we serve. His love is this amazing that he pursues us unending, unconditionally. This is what John is saying. You know, as a missionary, I get to talk a lot about evangelism. And, and uh, I've, I've been a mission since I was, I guess I'm no longer, I still consider myself a missionary. But I, since I was 17, right? And, and I've been, I've worked with, with thousands of missionaries, teaching so many people over the years about evangelism and, 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 and how to reach out others for the gospel. And, and there's different methodologies of doing that. And I'm not saying mine is right or mine's the best. It's just kind of the way the Lord has led me over time. And, and, and when I'm training people, one of the questions that often comes up in that is, is when do we mention hell in the process of sharing our faith? Now, I might get in trouble for this, but, um, but that's a question that often comes up because when I'm sharing faith and the kind of the model I use, I don't usually mention hell in the first conversation. I don't usually mention it right at the beginning. That's not my focus. My focus in sharing the gospel is I want people to meet this man named Jesus, right? I want them to fall in love with the reality of who Jesus is. And so I, I will get to hell. It's real and it exists and we'll talk about it eventually, but that's not where I start when I'm doing it. And I've had people get pretty angry at me and really frustrated and say, James, but if you don't bring up hell immediately, why would any Anyone come to Christ if they don't know about hell? If there's not the threat of hell, why would they come to Christ? I'm like, why? Because God is love. Because God is so amazingly, overwhelmingly good because Jesus is love incarnate in the flesh. And he gave his life for us. When Jesus was on earth, he didn't go around threatening hell of every person. He literally walks up to sinners, or not even walks up to them, walks past them and says, hey, you, come and follow me. And they leave behind their jobs. They leave behind their boats. They leave behind their nets. And they just say, there's something about that guy. I have to follow him. 
And the more broken they are, the more sinful they are, the more stuck in their sin and in their pain, the more attractive Jesus is to them. This, thank you, this is who Jesus is. God is love. And I know for many, this isn't a new message, but we got to keep hearing it again and again, because for John, as we're going to see, this is his message. God is love, and we must love one another. Because some of us, we may be struggling right now to, and need to hear this over and over. Because in, in the last year especially, many of us may be wrestling with anxiety and weariness that's only been heightened in this last year. You know, some people this last year, they rocked COVID. Like they, COVID was like a superpower for them. And they got promotions at work. They got better jobs. They got more healthy. They did better rhythms. Like, and we hate you, but that's okay. Those people, there's like COVID was just like the best year of their life. And, and, and God bless you, right? God bless you. But for, for, for many others, we're coming out of this time of COVID barely alive, right? Weary and tired and broken. And we need to hold on to Jesus. And need to hold on to the fact that his love is so much greater than our brokenness and our weariness. So much better than our ability to keep it together. That he is faithful and loving when we are faithless and have no capacity left to love. Right? Because his love is that big that he loves us when we got nothing to offer. And even when we're moving against him and against others, his love is greater than that. His love is bigger than our fears of not doing enough. Or the fact that others maybe did better and and we gained weight when others were losing it, right? God is love, and his love is demonstrated in Jesus, and it's unconditional, and it's so much greater than we could ever comprehend. Now, I would love to just to stop here and bring the worship band back up and just spend the next 30 minutes in just a time of ministry, but there's two more verses we got to hit because there's a reason John is saying all this stuff, and he's setting it up for the next couple verses. And so in verse 11, he says this, Beloved, if God so loved, we also ought to love one another. Here, here in verse 11, John brings the point home that God's love for us is beyond comprehension. And, you know, and, and some for us, what, with what you're going through, the reality is with stress and anxiety, and maybe you just need to rest in that reality that God is love. And that needs to be your take home tonight, right? And this next part, you know what? You just got to let that part go because you just need to sit in that place. You need to understand how amazing God's love is, right? But I, I want to get to this next part because what John now shows is why he reminded them of his love so much is that God's incredible love is because he says, if God's love for us is this amazing is this incredible we also ought to love one another right that's what we should if if his love is this good the natural response to a love this amazing is that the overflow of that is that we love one another that is what should be the overflow of this that we love others because jesus loved us and in fact the, the greek word that he uses here for ought to you know you ought to love one another is not like should or it's a good idea it's actually the word to a debt is owed it's it's ophilo it's it's to say that like you owe this like this is like a debt that is owed so what he's saying here is that we can do nothing but love one another if we understand this love it's just it has to happen to care for one another because christ has loved us so much and now this is the natural response, is to extend his love to others. Not out of some ladder that we're trying to climb or a threat of the law or, or, or trying to earn his favor, but because his love is that good. He, he told us earlier back in verse 8 of chapter 4, he said, 
Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love, right? That, so there may be some people, again, who struggle to love because they don't fully understand God. And we've got to continue to hammer that and get that right in our heads. Because here in verse 11, he's going to say, If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If God loves me this much, that empowers me to love others. When I feel wronged or, or cheated or, or abused or, che- or, or, or hurt in some way, God, I can say, if God so loved me this much, he says then, well, I can love. Because his love for me is far, far greater beyond those things. If I feel angry or hurt, I can pray and I can say, Jesus, if you loved us so much that you came from heaven to earth to die, if you literally died for those who, who were nailing you to the cross, then Jesus, show me how to love my neighbor who's hurt me. Show me how to love my boss who, who treats me like trash. Show me how to, this one's dangerous, show me how to love my president. Right? And, and he doesn't stop there. He adds one more element here in verse 12. And this is the kicker. Verse 12, he says, No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God's abides, God, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So he says, God cannot be seen, but, he says, if we actually love one another with the love that he's given us, God's love is perfected in us, and it's made visible to the world. The, the word there, perfected, means to be completed or like finished, to come to fulfillment. And this is just amazing. What he's saying is that you know, no one can see God. That, but when we step out and love one another the way that God loves us, God's love reaches out to that person. It's, it, God's love becomes visible through us. That's God's equation. That's the way God designed it. He says, it's, it's what brings God's love, the, the thing that brings God's love to completion, to perfection, is us taking his love and making him visible to the world by loving one another. That's God's intended goal. This was God's plan, that others would see him through us, that he would become manifest, real, clear to the world when we love with his love. That's God's plan of how to love the world. is not some indirect thing, but it's through us being his hands and feet, sharing about him. God makes his love visible to the world through us. That's, that's the equation there with God. Now, next week, we're going to see how this works because it's only possible through the Holy Spirit. Right? And that's verse 13. We'll, Steve will get there next week. But, so it's not, it's not by pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. It's, it's not by trying harder. It's not our own effort. It's all through the work of the Holy Spirit. But this is so amazing. God chooses to reveal his love, reveal his kingdom to the world through us loving others. You can't separate love of God and love from one another. That's how insanely amazing it is, the the love of God. And that's how this love is made visible to the world is by us being his ambassadors, his image bearers. I I love the way N.T. Wright says this again. He says, if love is the essence of who God is, right? We said that earlier. Love is the essence of who God is. If love is what defines him, then it should be what defines us as his children too. So as as Christians, if if we only really know who God is when we look at Jesus, right? That's how we know who God is. We look at Jesus and we get to know God. Hopefully we understand that. And he says the the world, the way they get to know God is going to be when they see Jesus revealed to the lives of Christians. 
And so just as Jesus made God visible to the world 2,000 years ago that was unready and unexpecting, and Jesus made God's love visible to the world when there was death on the cross, so now that's our call today, to do what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, to make him visible to the world today through the way we love one another. That's the highest calling we have. You know, when, when, this, when the Pharisees asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? In Matthew chapter 22, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your soul. This is the great and foremost commandment. And then he says, the second is like it, meaning the same. It's the same level. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the first commandment is love God. The second commandment is to love one another. Or as we looked earlier in chapter 15, Jesus says this in verse 12. We saw, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that a person will lay down his life for his friends. And he says, you are my friends if you do what I command. Now, this is Jesus' greatest command to us, to love one another. He literally says this here. I mean, this is Jesus' words. He literally says, friendship with me, to know me, what it means to know me is for you to love one another. That is what friendship with me looks like. A friendship with me, to know me is to love one another. And I love the ancient church father, Jerome, back in the fourth century, he, he tells the story of the, of, of the apostle John in his final days. And John, at this point, is likely 100 or over 100 years old. The only apostle alive that outlived every other apostle that was with Jesus by probably 40 years. At this point, he is frail, he is weak, and, and it is the greatest honor in the world would be to have John show up in your church that is under persecution and hiding, and they would really carry him into services, weak, barely able to speak, and people would flock to him, and they, they, they'd wait on every word that comes from his mouth, saying, John, tell us about Jesus. You're the only person that knew him, the apostle that Jesus loved so much. Tell us about Jesus. And this is that John would go down and he'd give his sermon, and this was his sermon barely able to speak it out. Everyone's leaning in, and quietly he says, little children, love one another. And they'd be like, okay, and? What else? And he'd say, that's it. Like, and they, they, he records and said, no, tell us more. There must be more. And John's response was this. He said, it is enough, for that is Jesus' commandment. Love one another. John in the end of his life, with all that was going on in the Roman Empire and all the persecution, had one singular message for the body of Christ. Love one another. So what about us today? Have we graduated beyond this simple truth? Are, are, have we matured beyond the simple message of John and of Jesus, and we just want greater revelations and truth? I love Dr. Ken Hughes says this. He says, our spiritual maturity is not measured by our age or how long we've been a Christian or how long we've been a church member or how much Bible knowledge we have or the level of service in our church. No, our spiritual maturity is measured by our love. My last reference today, John 13, he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. This is how people will know you're of me. This is the doctrine that will do it. It's not about the perfect doctrine of, of all the things and having all the truth even we talked about last week or our opinion on politics, or, or, but it's how well we practically love one another 
is the defining example for him that we are his disciples. Jesus says, what should define us as Christians? What is it? Our love for one another. Just like Jesus is defined by his love, God is defined by his. So love defines who God is, and love for others should be what defines us as his children. Now, there, there's so many ways I would, I would love to take this message and so many possible applications, but I just want to give one specific application for us here at Northfield. You know, we're going to have plenty of opportunities to talk far more about this as the Bible just keeps saying this over and over and over again. So um, we're going to keep coming back to this over and over and over again. But the, the one I wanted just to hit as is, is, is we finish up this morning was that loving one another has been one of Northview's greatest strengths. Right? This, is, this is why we fell in love with this church. This is the DNA of Northview that, that Steve brought in, or even before, maybe Dan Rupp and the others. I mean, this is what we've been known for. It's our greatest strength. That as I've met with people the last eight months, those are new. I've been meeting with so many families as I'm just new here and getting to know people. And as I spend time in your homes and ask stories, I find over and over again, what people tell me is the reason why you're here is because you felt loved by Steve in this community. That is the thing that drew people. It's why people are here is the love of this community for one another. And that is awesome. It's, it's why we're here. We felt so loved by this community. But something happened, um, for those of you that, that, that maybe have forgotten, about 18 months or so ago, there was this like this pandemic thing that, that kind of took over, right? And, and during this pandemic that, that started about 18 months ago, we spent 18 months with masks on. We spent 18 months, for many of us, with being distant in different ways and, and not seeing each other as much, or it might have been a less time than that. And, and we, we spent so much time distancing from other people and, and, and even becoming suspicious of strangers and, 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 and staying in our pods of people that were just the safe people around us. I mean, children forgot what it was like to socialize and you come back to church, kids didn't even know what to do or how to interact or socialize and, and many adults as well. Um, and, and, and praise God, we're coming out of this COVID coma right now, right? That, that's awesome. But the problem is, as studies have shown, specifically, there was one in the European Journal of, what was it, um, Social psychology, it's one of the most frequently cited studies, that to create a new habit takes 66 days, on average. Anywhere from 18 to 254, but they say on average it's 66 days. And, and so regardless whether we were in, in lockdown for 18 or we, we exceeded way more than 66. In fact, we remain distant from people for more than 254. And so what it means is we've created a lot of habits in this season that, that keep us at a distance from one another. Even with masks off, we, we spent so much time getting distance that it became normative for us. You know, and in some ways, we've moved away from some of our DNA of what it means to genuinely love one another. We've formed these new habits and new rhythms. And hopefully some of those rhythms were good. And some of these habits were good. I mean, hopefully you picked up some good hobbies. I mean, like other than, you know, like binging Tiger King in the crown, right? Like there'd be hopefully some better hobbies than that. I mean, maybe you started jogging or do some of the other things that were regularly healthy. I know that's something I picked up after a while. I have not run in my life, never did, not even in playing football. And now I'm jogging a few miles regularly. Like there's something good to be said for that extra time. But some of us, we've also picked up really unhealthy habits. Isolation, avoidance and withdrawing from, from, from the world and distancing ourselves. And, and you know, here at church, I've been doing everything I can to get to know people. 
I'm not perfectly, it's just what I'm doing. So I'm actually paid to do it, right? So it's not a big deal. But, but, and, and so every Sunday I park myself out at the, uh, uh, at the front. As you'll see me out there is the weird guy constantly saying hello to all the new people and those that are just newly coming back after a year and everyone else. And I'm asking lots and lots of questions. Sorry, family today, they're like, James, I feel like I'm being uh, interviewed right now. There are so many questions for me. My apologies. Um, and uh, it was just before service. And I just, I want to get to know people, right? And, and one of the questions I'm, as, I'm often asking is, is how they're doing. And I hear over and over again is people saying we are desperate for a connection we've been in isolation for so long we need connection and what i've often found is it's very common for people to come for a first time or for the first time in over a year as they're returning and come and join us sit with us and leave and not have any connection because we've gotten so used to our places of safety and our, our holy huddles and our, and our bubbles, that we've, we're, we're walking out of some of these practices that were unhealthy that we developed in this time, and we've lost some of the DNA. And I'd like to encourage us today to continue to grow in loving one another, to strengthen some of the muscles that may have atrophied in the last year, to open up our eyes a bit wider, to recognize those in our midst that we might not recognize the faces of or, or see them and you know each week the lord is bringing new families into our midst it's amazing every week we're seeing new families come and that's so exciting and as john said we need to love one another well i love it in romans chapter 16 verse 16 paul says greet one another with a holy kiss right and, and, and i'm not asking to get weird and frisky but but that 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 that, that letter was written to the, the church in rome right and it was written to them and in that passage john was saying you need to practically show that you love one another practically and welcome one another in practical ways so for them that's greet one another with a holy kiss it's a practical way of showing that you love and that people are welcomed in your midst and historically we've been so good about this whether it be home groups and if you're not in a home group please join one we're starting up a new one this week there's more starting this summer huge push in the fall please get connected but we, we've done family meals, we've done rotating home meals, we've done church in the park, so many things we, we, and we're going to reboot many of those things but in this season I want to encourage us. I want to give us a, a gentle nudge to make an additional effort to pursue one another, to see those in our midst that we, we, we don't necessarily know, and not with a weird holy kiss. Well, maybe if you're, if you're Italian, Dave, it'd probably be okay for you, if, maybe, depending on the other party. Um, but, uh, it, but not something weird, but to genuinely get to know one another, to pursue one another, to each week be on the lookout for the others in our midst. We're old faces we haven't seen in a long time. Amen? All right. So remember, God's love is for us. It is so insanely good. And now we get to make his love visible to one another. All right. So let us pray. Father, I just thank you for your love. And I just pray for anyone here today that's in that place of weariness. Oh, Jesus, may you meet them so sincerely and beautiful right where they're at there's anyone struggling with the words of i'm unworthy or i'm just too too weary jesus meet them in that place shower them with your love this morning and if you want come forward for prayer come talk to one of us or i'll be up here come just meet with god today if you're in that place but lord for all of us i pray may we receive your challenge of your word that our call is to love as you have loved and to be your hands and feet amen